0: hello and welcome to the advice show from advising clients to practice management this podcast will bring you uk and global insights into the financial planning profession my name is james fitzgerald reporter at new model advisor and today i am joined by declan mccandrew head of investment research at foster de novo declan welcome to you and thanks for joining me
1: no welcome everyone and thank you james for asking me
0: my pleasure now, last year, Foster DeNovo launched their sustainable dynamic portfolios, and say we're going to talk about those, and about the challenges and opportunities around developing a sustainable investment proposition, laying the foundations of a proposition by determining a company-wide policy, seeking authenticity, diligent research, and indeed how to d- discuss sustainable investing and with clients, rather. So, to kick things off, Declan, how should advisors articulate ESG investing to clients, and with your sustainable portfolios and approach, have you found a way to broach the subject in a more in-depth way?
1: Yeah, articulation is is key, as as we all know. ESG is such a nuanced and evolving area. You can get bogged down in the kind of the detail without seeing the actual um, endpoint. I mean, what we we've done, we've made a, a decision that that we'll put that ESG piece within all of our uh, suitability assessment, fact-finding, mm-hmm. the articulation by some visuals, I think is uh, is quite powerful. Many people have used the spectrum of capital, which is what we use as well as a, as a front and center piece with, with our clients to show them the range of investment options from pure uh, financials through to ESG risk mitigation, which is obviously more of a passive uh, flavor, more progressive policies to potentially enhance value through to impact investing, which may or may not give up some of the financial return, all the way through to philanthropy. And then to fill in some of those potential knowledge gaps by giving examples in both ES and, and G piece. But it's very much about uh, having an open conversation, putting you know the history of um, sustainable SRI investing into context there. Um, but it is always an evolving piece as well. So w- when we talk about in depth, we discuss... Things like the UN um, Sustainable Development Goals, etc., as well to put bring that more nuance, and and we're continuing that. We're bringing kind of carbon conversations uh, with our up with our clients as well. So it's a very evolving piece, uh, but it's important not is to bring it back to the real world mm. and actually understand what's important to the the client as well, rather than trying to drive them in one particular area.
0: Well, how do you broach it with the clients? Um, there's been a lot of talk from advisors on social media in recent weeks. And I think there was a, a few articles in some certain newspapers um, last weekend, the weekend before about, you know, advisors are quite vocal in saying that, oh, you know, none of my clients have ever asked me, so why should I ask them? And yes, there is no regulatory framework around it. But is is it is it worth advisors actually broaching this subject with clients? Really, how what's the best way to go about it?
1: Well, it absolutely is worth. Um, them broaching it, actually being front and centre with them, but not having a specialist kind of separate fact find for for those clients that have kind of told them about that. It's being front and centre and going through with every single client. I think that's the only way to do that. Dare I say the age demographic of advisors does does come across with some of those surveys to say Mm -hmm. not some of my clients, but a lot of those clients are into into intergenerational planning So the the client's children or grandchildren certainly uh, be interested in that area. But there is a a stereotype regarding it's only millennials or Generation X that are interested in the area. I think it's been debunked debunked a lot with uh, various kind of surveys of people and various campaigns that have been much more higher profile. But you think about, you know, ESG, the way things have changed in the last year and a bit since the pandemic, you've got a president now in the US who is making that one one of his policies for election and actually mm. implementing, implementing that. The G7, you know, over the weekend as well. It wasn't a niche area. This is now front and centre. And dare I say, it, not before time.
0: In terms of, you brought up age demographics. Um, and in terms of older clients, not really wanting to, you know, talk about ESG or sustainable investing. Is it becoming more common now that those clients' children or grandchildren, for example, are bringing up sustainable investing and then really pushing them to have a chat with their financial advisor about it? Yeah,
1: we're finding, actually, clients, um, some of our advisors are being surprised at the clients they've known for many years broaching these subjects. Some of them mm. have been prompted by the younger generations. Some of them are just the more awareness Within the kind of news media, etc., then they're now kind of. If you think about the way that uh, climate change has now become front and centre, and and that is is very feeds into to people's view about what they want with their money, not just financial return, but obviously to to avoid bad and then do a, a net positive good. Uh, I think we've seen that seen that trend, and that 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 takes away from some of those older. of dark green ethical exclusionary piece because that's where some of the financial advisors mindset is coming from you eventually have you know a a question set of 15 exclusionary and then you end up with no options available and and that is the the reason why we we took us upon ourselves to educate ourselves have a company policy and then roll that education out to our staff and advisors is to give them the context of history of sri investing ethical investing but actually to show how you know ESG is today and how it could potentially evolve as well. So that's not a one and done. Clearly, that's something that needs to be refreshed on a very regular basis. But that's a spur. That's a that's a kind of enthusiasm piece and a momentum piece uh, to to make sure that knowledge is kept up to date.
0: No, great, great. Well, can we talk a bit more about Foster's Novo's uh, sustainable processes? Mm. How do you go about it? You know, what what is the inner workings in the business? What, we, we,
1: we made the conscious decision that the sustainable model portfolio should have the same kind of benchmarks in terms of return, the same risk dynamics as our existing range, mm-hmm. which has been going on since the beginning of 19. So they shouldn't be a return compromise. Indeed, obviously, there's a lot of research regarding different ESG factors and their potential for longer term, uh, better risk adjusted returns. So we chose that we use the same quantitative filtering process as we have with um, our other range, focusing on risk-adjusted returns, downside risk, which is important to the clients. Clearly, there's a smaller potential pool of funds within that. That's just the, you know, the clients have got to understand that. And then we overlay it with specialist research in this area. We have outside people to help us with that as to avoid kind of groupthink. And we kind of stress test that on a regular basis as well. But we know that obviously data is not complete in this area and there are differences between different rating uh, providers, data providers. So it is it is always going to be something that needs to be uh, kept under review.
0: And what has the feedback been both from your advisors and their clients?
1: Well, actually it's been very good. I, I say some of our advisors have been surprised uh, it opens another strand of conversation with their mm. with their clients. They've been long standing for many years, and they have obviously a, a very strong bond of trust there. It is something that they haven't kind of proactively discussed with clients before, and there's been some surprise about the clients uh, actually being very amenable to that and actually putting their toe in the water with it as part of their portfolio and then getting a, a, a more a level of comfort within that and, and gradually progressing that. I suppose it's it's always going to be uh, different. Clients will have different attitudes. It's about changing the mindset uh, for our advisors as well. Going, this is an opportunity. This is how the investment markets and obviously pol- govern- governmental policy regulatory is going to go. Why why not be on the front foot to that and offer mm-hmm. that up? Don't overpromise. Obviously, there are always compromises within that. You know, our tagline is you know focusing on. You know, progress, not perfection. But so you know, I say we, we've we've launched both an active and passive ranges to that, and we we kind of make sure we we try and keep true to the authenticity, which is harder than it than it first appears.
0: Hmm. How does the mix of active and passive work?
1: Can you well? Can you delve we into we that made the conscious please? decision to, to keep it straightforward that there will be a pure active portfolio and a pure passive one. So the active one was launched last year was supplemented beginning of this year by a passive because because if you go back to that spectrum of capital Hmm. passive um, vehicles you know whilst obviously market weighted uh, market uh, cap weighted they would be more within the esg mitigation piece of the uh, band of the spectrum of capital we'd expect active managers to have more concentrated portfolios to do a lot more engagement and stewardship on that piece so they'd have more a progressive policy to potentially enhance longer-term returns as well. So rather than co those, we kept them distinctly pure active and, and pure passive. Now, obviously, cost considerations with the clients, they may well choose a, a blend of those both. But from from our model portfolios, we tried to keep it distinct rather than muddy the waters more than was already there.
0: Mm. Well, I suppose that could confuse clients too, couldn't it? If you, if you do muddy the waters a bit, especially when you've got costs and considerations as well.
1: Yes, but also in terms of the potential impact, we'd expect mm. passive portfolios to have less, obviously, ESG engagement in terms of their voting activities, et cetera. But obviously, they are not going to search out, if their market cap weighted, the, the kind of the future companies that are going to grow and, and have the solutions to uh, you know, environmental solutions and, and other pieces within that. So that's where you
0: expect an active manager to, to you know, earn their corn. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of people are quite, um, you know, when you talk about ESG's investing over the past few years, as soon as you bring up ESG or um, stable investing, everyone goes, oh, yeah, it's just passive. Um, how, how do you see the the, you know, the active market in this space?
1: Yeah, there are a lot of longstanding active managers in, in this space that have been doing it for a long time. Um, it's important not to get too purist about it. Mm. Um, I say that the way, the way we articulate to clients is very clearly we would expect more, uh, passive to be have la- less enhancement of value because there's just the way they they go about constructing their reference indices, etc. cetera. Um, the whole passive V active debate is all very well worn and it, it gets a bit tiresome. and obviously it's been, mm. as you said re- rebranded for the ESG in the ESG lens. Uh, it's important not to be too prescriptive because but it, the communication to clients about what is and isn't achievable. Within, say, a passive a set of passive vehicles, is as important as anything else. You, you're buying what you get, and you know, and that's the, that clarity is hugely important to to make sure that you know those expectations are managed and we're not overstating what is achievable.
0: Mm-mm. And in in terms of, uh, I'm not going to go into you know funds themselves, but in terms of the fund houses that you do use in your portfolios or that you are in contact with or you know liaise with. Um, that do offer, offer these sustainable funds, both active and passive. You know, who is fostered over using it at the moment that is offering the right sustainable approach? Well, it's
1: it's interesting that there are a number of um, fund houses and the active space that have been in this area for a long time. Some of them are large and some of them are more kind of uh, niche. Uh, we always look for authenticity. Mm-hmm. We look for, obviously, the, the signatories to the UN PRI, the assessments to their external verification is hugely important, as well as impact reporting of that, um, and not overclaiming in terms of what they do. People like the Federated Hermes, obviously a very large organisation, uh, Montanaro, more specialist, um, smaller mid-cap space, they, 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 they have an authenticity about what they do. We have a few of the full underlying holdings, we can interrogate why... Certain holdings are in there. They are transparent and open both on their websites and actually in, in one-to-one contact. And actually other other companies like you know, Impact, Impacts and Pictay on the more thematic piece of, of, kind of, of kind of what other fund managers should aspire to in hmm. terms of their openness and transparency. On the passive piece, you've got actually there's iShares and, and US and UBS do a good job of uh, some of the MSCI SRI indices, uh, we found them to be useful. There still is a lot of scope within both active and passive for newer entrants, as long as they do go about things the right way.
0: No, fair enough too, and you know, to dumb it down a little bit, you know, does it, do these fund houses and funds, you know, they need to really offer you know, what, it's, what it says or what it does on the uh, tin?
1: That, that is one of the th- absolute first criteria. Um you'll, you'll be aware of um, some of the, re- the repurposing, which is a nice term of some of the existing funds to, to put slap on an ESG marketing uh, tagline. If they don't actually go about things in the right way, then they, the advisors, there's a, a risk to advisors buying something that's you know, all shiny in terms mm. of the marketing, but doesn't have actually the authenticity about the underlying holdings, the process, the repeatability, et cetera. Um, we welcome your entrance to the field because that should increase standards. So we, last 18 months, I think standards of transparency has increased. There's there's quite a lot to go in terms of that because I think it's quite natural that active fund managers are always looking for the new kind of inflow piece. And Mm -hmm. clearly last year and this year, you've seen the inflows and the, the level of debate and conversation has increased massively in this area so there's, there's human nature tells us that they will be following a wagon um, and uh, trying to pitch themselves on it
0: now you mentioned research earlier um and fosters nova has partnered with esg research firm worth stone um, mm-hmm. how important is you know ready-made research to help advisors make the right decisions and guide their clients through the esg sorry esg investing rabbit hole as it were
1: Yeah, it's actually very important. Rather than kind of ready made, it's about having a partnership Mm. with a research uh, firm or data provider. Um, You know, it's very important to to understand what their motivations are as well. Um, Worthstone have been going for more than 10 years, started off in the pure impact space, have, have obviously broadened the horizons into more ESG and sustainable. You know, their only clients are financial advisors. They don't have any uh, vested interest. I've actually been on the investment committee there for the last four or five years in a, a advisory pro bono basis. So we understand them well. But they understand that the, the data is not complete in areas and, and, there is, and that brings with it challenges. If you understand what their methodology is and have an open conversation, then best practice can actually be a, a two-way dialogue. You know, one of the things... We talk about co2 emissions there's very little complete data about scope mm. three and uh, you'll you'll know that that is often multiple times bigger than scope they reported so one and two that's an area that we need to we need to be uh, knowledgeable of that to communicate it to our clients about the compromises in terms of the 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 data etc but absolutely having ready-made is because it doesn't abdicate. You know, you can't abdicate responsibilities because the research, you've got to understand what goes into the inputs there to come out with the outputs. It's Mm -hmm. the first stage of that. Having an open dialogue is always very useful.
0: Yeah, very much so. Do you foresee the data around stable investing getting better and better as we go along?
1: It will have to. And Mm. it already kind of has improved there. As I say, there are challenges regarding uh, much debate about different organisations have different ratings for, the same firm. I, I, I see that as a very well-worn kind of piece, but that is understanding what they're looking for. But absolutely, the, 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 the data, both in terms of quality, timeliness and detail will improve and it has to improve to make financial advisor job not easier per se, but more complete and to avoid some of those reputational risks with clients. I think that's very important.
0: Now, finally, there is no set-in-stone regulation that makes advisors accountable for making clients aware of sustainable investing. Well, not yet, anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, more firms and advisors need to start implementing their own sustainable investment policies for clients instead of waiting for the FCA to, mm-hmm. to make them do it?
1: I think absolutely. I mean, if you see this, if you flip it around to seeing it as, oh, the regulator, the FCA is going to, you know, mirror method two, change the COB rules or the the disclosure regime the EU is going to be mirrored in the UK for, for funds, et cetera, or the EU taxonomy, which is happening, is going to have a EU equivalent. The opportunity set is there. So rather than having a regulatory dragging, uh, kicking or, and or screaming to that, actually being on the front foot, I think, for advisory firms is, is their opportunity. Back to you, it's another conversation with existing clients. It's another... Yeah. Potential client set that hasn't hasn't been serviced. Absolutely. It's going it's going to come that you we need to be asking Clients about this at the initial fact-finding stage. So why wouldn't you include it now? Obviously, you need to do some education and how it's presented articulated as we mentioned before But absolutely this there's no reason for that not to be included at this time and dare I say it you're, you're actually more in control Rather than being at the auspices of a regulator saying you have to do it, which, as we know before, does not come with the best outcomes for clients or financial advisory firms. So we don't know the details, as you said, but we know the direction of travel will be there. We know there's a there's a the market there, the for clients that haven't been serviced in this area. So why wouldn't you do the the groundwork and the knowledge? Um, it starts with. Humility as well, not knowing everything is uh, for financial advisors sometimes an uncomfortable place
0: to be. That's a good thing. Indeed, indeed. Well, Declan McAndrew, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, James.